Do take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're on the last stretch of Hebrews, the last chapter. We're going to read verses 1 to 6. Let's hear the Word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see beautiful things in your law. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we've read these words together. They are eminently practical. And you might be forgiven if you felt that this is a kind of afterthought, tucked away right at the very end of what is a very long book. And we're addressing it on sermon number 77 of the sermons that we've preached already on this book. And I think there is certainly something to be learned from the disproportion of this. You see, Christianity is not primarily, a list of do's and don'ts. It is not primarily practical in that sense. I say not primarily practical. It is first and foremost a revelation of God, of God as He is in Himself, and of God's action towards what He has made and whom He has chosen. It is of the greatest importance, this matter of thinking rightly of the triune God, if we are to know Him and love Him as the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. So there's something to learn from the disproportion uh, in, in this book. On the other hand, as we've gone through the book, we've found ourselves being prepared for this moment. We've had those throwaway lines or those earnest exhortations, the famous warning passages, as they're called, earlier on in the book. And what what has been apparent when you read those passages is there is a consistent line of reasoning about what the Christian life looks like when the boots are on the ground, as it were. And it's best summed up by the title of one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's books, Life Together. Life Together. The Christian life is intended to be lived out in the fellowship of the church, among the people of God, among the saints, in the communion of saints. It is to be lived out in the church of God. Now, when we talk about living out the Christian life in the church of God, we've got to be aware of some errors that are, 
that are around us, scattered around us in the evangelical scene today, one of which is often described as social Trinitarianism. Social Trinitarianism tries to draw a straight line between the inner life of God and our lives together. It tries to draw a straight line between the one and the other. The Bible does not allow us to do that, however. In the first place, because God is one. One even in His triune life. God is one. There is no counterpart in any relationships we have because God's one in essence. In this room this morning, there's a bunch of essences, most of whom are sitting down and one of whom is standing up. We are not one essence. God is one. Secondly, there is a clear divide between the freedom and perfection of God's work and the limitations and imperfections of the church's work. I mean, you just need to know our church for 10 minutes to know about the limitations and imperfections of the church's work. And then thirdly, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28 draws a line of demarcation between the uniqueness, the fullness, the perfection, and the sufficiency of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the use of that word in the Greek, one word, hapex, in English, once and once for all to describe the work of God while the church, on the other hand, is the object of God's grace, is given a holiness because the church is regarded as holy. It is one holy Catholic church. But that holiness does not belong to the essence of the church, and the church is you and I. Holiness does not belong to our essence. It is a gift. It is an alien holiness that is given to us that is credited to us, and the church exists by the Word of God alone, like creation. God spoke creation into being. God brings the church into being by His Word. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why we always start off our our worship on the Lord's Day with the Word of God. God constitutes us as His church. We exist by God's choice, because we find our origin in God's election. We exist by God's grace, because we are by nature sinners. And we exist because God says so by His Word. Now, having said all that by way of introduction, what do we see as we look at this text before us this morning? The first thing that your eye should alight on is this word, love, because the Christian community is established by and in love. Think about this for a moment. First, God is love. This is how we know what love is. This is why we love, because God is love. It belongs to His being, His existence to love. Secondly, God demonstrates His love 
for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do I know God loves me? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God demonstrates His love for us in the sending of His Son. And thirdly, God has been, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do I love God this morning? I do not love God by nature. By nature, I do not like God. By nature, I am a rebel and an enemy of God. If I love God, it's because God, by His Spirit, has poured His love into my heart, enabling, if you will, love to then ascend towards God, the God who has made me. And that's only possible by the gift and fruit of the Spirit. And so the kind of love we're talking about is spiritual by nature. Uh, This uh, love of God is stripped, therefore, if we talk about the love of God, we, we find that it's stripped of all that is sensuous and earthly and impure. It is a pure and holy love. This love that flows into all of life, all of our thoughts and our deeds, this love for God that gives form and force to all our interactions, relations, words, and deeds. This love exists in fellowship, fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and fellowship with one another. John Owen, one of the the great Puritan theologians, says that the outcome of divine fellowship is human fellowship. And he puts it like this, all love has its foundation in relation. Where there is relation, there is love, or there ought to be. And where there is no relation, there can be no love, properly so-called. So, love is grounded, therefore, in the love of the Father through the Son and the Spirit for the church. All believers love have one Father. All believers have one elder brother who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. All believers are indwelt by one Spirit who is the Spirit of sonship, the Spirit of adoption whereby we are sons of God, daughters of God, one in God's eyes, men and women, sons of God, heirs, co-heirs with Christ of an eternal fellowship. And in this love, we enjoy fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia, fellowship. The whole idea of this assumes certain things. It assumes that we are persons, that we are rational beings, that we are beings who both know ourselves and then give ourselves to others. That's at the core of what it means to love in fellowship. Spiritual life is communal life. Uh, Bavink says, it cannot exist on its own. 
for it then languishes and dies. C.H. Spurgeon once gave an illustration to some of his young preachers. He took a coal from the fire and he laid it on the fire, uh, on the fire, the tiles at the bottom of the fire. He laid it out there anyway. And as they watched this glowing piece of coal, it turned black and eventually it died. And, and Spurgeon said, this is what happens without fellowship. This is what happens to a Christian without fellowship, without relation. They die. We were made for fellowship because love presupposes fellowship. Now, that's the background then to this exhortation. Let brotherly love continue, says our author. And in doing so, he puts all of our behavior and relation towards one another in their proper context, in the context of family and friendship. To be the friends of Jesus, you have to have the same friends He has. That's a bottom line issue. Now, you'll know that this is particularly relevant to us this morning sitting here because the Greek word for brotherly love is, of course, Philadelphia. You all knew that. From Philia, which is Phileo, which means to love, and Adelphoi, which are the brothers and sisters in a family. Here we are. We have love for the brothers and sisters in the family of God. And it's used of that particular relation between Christian people as opposed to other relations we have. In Romans 12, uh, the Apostle Paul unpacks what he means by the phrase sincere love. And he talks about uh, hating evil and holding on to the good. He talks about honoring one another above ourselves. And then he talks about us showing brotherly love to one another, family love, sibling love to one another in Christ. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, having sanctified your souls by the obedience to the truth and having entered into a sincere Philadelphia, love one another with a pure heart, fervently. In other words, having entered into a sincere relationship, of brotherly love, of, of relating to one another in Christ, then love one another with a pure heart fervently. Christian friendship and fellowship is the basis on which we can learn to live a, have a purer and more intense affection for one another. In fact, in the context of this little passage, if you glance to the paragraph before, where it talks about the removal of things that are shaken and uh, they, the, the, those things that cannot be shaken remain. He is saying that this brotherly love we have is going to remain when the world is shaken, when everything collapses, when the end comes, when the new heavens and new earth come about. One thing that will, will last into eternity is this brotherly love that we have as the family of God. It is an unshakable thing that will remain in God's eternal rule. Now, what does he say here about this brotherly love? He says it is to continue, continue. The Apostle John says, everyone who loves the Father 
loves whoever has been born of him. We love the people of God. We love those who have been born into the family of God. Now, this is not something you just switch on. It's not some button you can press. It, it doesn't happen automatically. It takes work. It takes time. We have to cultivate the graces. We have to, to perform the duties required to love one another. The very most basic Christian instinct is also the most important instinct, and that is that we should gather as God's people. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. To enjoy, therefore, mutual love, we have to be present to and with one another. Now, that includes public worship. Probably that's where our primary presence to one another happens, where we're all present, where the family are all together. The one day in the week, all the family get together for Sunday lunch over the Word. Now, I'm talking about the Word of God feeling. You're not what you get afterwards once you've left the room. But here we are all together in one place. It's the Lord's Day. We're with the Lord's people in the Lord's appointed time around the Lord's Word that we might talk to our Father in heaven, that we might receive His benefits uh, amongst us, and that we might hear all together in one place what the Father has to say to us from His Word. So that we can all go home, and for the rest of the week we can remind each other, God said this to me on Sunday, and the others can say, well, God said that to me too, so that's a good thing. We gather together to God in public worship. But it also means that we are to be present with and to others in less formal settings. On the Lord's Day, we, we celebrate the sacrament with one another in church. In Acts chapter 2, we find on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, and all the believers are together, and they gather together. It's a Sunday. It's the first day of the week. They're, they're there together in the temple, and the, the Lord's apostles, they teach the Scripture to them. They teach the Word of God to them. They, they break bread. That is, they have the sacrament of the supper there together, remembering what the Lord Jesus told them to do. They sing praises to Him, and they have fellowship together in worship on the Lord's day. But then as you cast your eye down, you find that they were meeting up during the week in private homes. And they were eating together. I mean, eating real food together. They were having real meals together. They were developing friendship, relationship in those informal settings. Social interaction for the Christian is an important thing. We have two forms of revelation, natural revelation and inscripturated revelation. Both are divine revelation. From natural revelation, we learn that informal social occasions are vital to building relationships. They don't always have to be Bible studies, but they do have to be relation building and getting to know you and sharing life together, sharing life together. That is the secret to Christian development. Other things we can do, like reading groups or dinner groups. I know that some of you have these fancy dinners that you, you have. You've got a little group of people, you have somebody 
cooks are really important. That's a great thing to do. Sorry for being excluded from that, but that uh, you enjoy it. Uh, others go, have their small group Bible studies. These are, these are great places to build relationship with one another. Brotherly love expresses itself in relation. Then secondly, mutual love shows itself in hospitality. Do you notice that? There's a, there's a direct link between the first and the second part. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Here, hospitality is an expression of Philadelphia, of brotherly love. It would appear that the people that this writer is writing to were neglecting this. They were flagging in their friendliness, we might say, towards strangers, meaning strangers, Christian strangers, new people in the church, people who were passing through, speakers perhaps, who were stopping off on their way to, to go somewhere else. And the writer is saying that Christian hospitality is a matter of faithfulness and loyalty, so that the love by which we have been redeemed and which unites us to our spiritual siblings in Christ is manifested in very nuts and bolts, real-life ways towards those who are new to us. In second, third John, rather, third John verse 5, John refers to this when he says to these people he's writing to, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the whole church. Here were people who'd gone to this area, gone to this church. They'd been brought into the family. They'd been, they'd been welcomed. They'd been received. They'd become part of them. And they'd then gone on somewhere else. And wherever they'd gone, they'd testified to others. When we went to that church, we were treated like family. John commends them. What is hospitality? Hospitality means making space for strangers in one's own space. Making space for strangers in one's own space. There's a negative illustration that I have to give. And it's all been long forgiven, and it would never happen today. But my wife went to a church and sat down not too far from where I'm standing uh, one Sunday. And she was asked if she would move because the people were keeping that seat for someone else. That was the first time anyone ever talked to her in this church. That would never happen today because I've told that story. It's definitely not going to happen ever because you never know who's sitting beside you in church. But I tell the story because we can learn from that, can't we? We can learn to have our eyes open to the strangers. These strangers had been received. Hospitality means making space for strangers in one's own space. A group that gathers in brotherly love gladly receives the lonely, the endangered, and the newcomer. Peter says, practice hospitality ungrudgingly. Make room for others in the circle of your friends. How do you do it making room for others in your small group that have been going together, you've been going together for 25, 30 years? How, 
how are you doing there? That's very hard, isn't it, to, to make room? But this is, this is the thing, we're to make room for other people. And it does involve stretching and a little bit of suffering to have to deal with new people in our group. But that's what church is. That's what brotherly love is. And the writer tells us that there is a particular blessing for this in entertaining strangers, because he says, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. There's a story of the three angels who went to Sodom. And they were sodomized in Sodom. They were, they were attacked and they were misused and abused there because the people of Sodom did not realize these were the messengers of God, and the judgment fell. But in the previous chapter, that was Genesis 19, in Genesis 18, these three strangers come to Abraham's tent. Abraham has not a clue who they are, but he receives them warmly. He wines and dines them, and then it turns out that they're messengers from God, and they've come from heaven to announce the news of the birth of Isaac. Abraham Abraham and Sarah's one and only son, who is also going to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Abraham did not know that when he received them, with all the stresses of the unknowing and the indiscriminate nature of true hospitality, he did not know that God was going to bless it. Now, hospitality can be abused. There are those who are simply on the take. There are those who will take advantage of you, and vulnerability isn't a bad thing, and wisdom is a good thing. At this point, I want to tell you a true story. And I've cleared it with my wife before I tell it. I don't always clear them, but this one I cleared because of the nature of the story. I was out speaking. I think it was a Saturday night. I think at the last service, I thought it was. uh, I said I thought it was a a, a, an elders meeting, Um, but apparently it was a Saturday night. I got corrected, and uh, I'm always open to correction. Um, Our elders meeting went on till twelve o'clock. Uh, on Tuesday. So I got home a bit earlier from this meeting. I think I was speaking Saturday night, came home, and uh, Christine met me at the door. Always scary. There's something afoot. She's telling me to be quiet. That while I was out, a man had come to the door. Uh, he had uh, walked maybe 20 miles quite a long walk. And uh, he had come hoping that he'd be able to stay in the home of a, our assistant minister, our associate minister. But they were out of town. So he thought, good, the second, I mean, after, if the assistant minister's not there, the second best is going to the minister's house. So he came knocking on my door, and uh, Christine took him in. The guy had been walking all day. He was, his clothes were needing washed. So she gives him some clothes to wear. My clothes to wear. Uh, he has a shower, and then she feeds him some of the food that was left over from the kids' dinner, uh, which I was probably going to get some of, but it all <laughs> gone. And then he was exhausted. Well, you would, have be, you would be after walking 20 miles. He'd gone to bed. 
I said, what? (laughs) Or words to that effect. Who is this man? I mean, do we have any idea who this man is? He could be an axe murderer. In fact, my children to this day refer to the axe murderer incident. But he could have been an axe murderer. I went upstairs and I barricaded the kids in their room. They remember it to this day. I barricaded them in the room. So, the next morning, we got up, he went to church, and we put him on a train, and we sent him home. I remember being somewhere, somewhere, and somebody out of the blue some years later came to me, and they said, you know, we are so impressed by how you treated our friend. You know, he, he was going through a bad time, and when he's under pressure, he just goes out and he walks for miles, and he came to your house, and you welcomed him in. Of course. I will let you decide who is right and who is wrong. I think think Christine's instincts were right to welcome him in, to feed him and clothe him, put him to bed. Well, she didn't put him to bed. He went to bed himself. Uh, But um, I think I might be a wee bit right in worrying about him being an axe murderer. Uh, Hospitality does require wisdom. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Wisdom. And I'll go home and face the music in, in due course. Mutual love shows itself in hospitality. Mutual love shows itself in empathy. Remember those who are in… We better watch our time. Uh, Well, I don't need to watch the time as you do. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Remember. Remember means here the way it's used. It means to keep them in mind but also to think yourself into their circumstances. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to to be sidelined by people when he was put in jail for the gospel. People didn't come to see him. His Christian friends didn't come to see him. They kept away. They didn't want to be identified with Paul because he was in jail for uh, the gospel. And the Apostle was so grateful for that converted slave called Onesiphorus, who he said, often refreshed me and who is not ashamed of my chains. And it's important that we care for the prisoner. It's important we care for those who are ill-treated in one form or another. It covers all kinds of ill-treatment and abuse. We, we need to be careful. Why? Because we're in the body too. We could be mistreated. We could be abused. We could be assaulted. We could be hurt. We're in the body too. So we, we're, we're remind, mindful of the fact that we are as fragile as they are, and if we were in their circumstances and had been beaten around or mistreated in any way, we would be suffering as they are suffering. So we remember that, and we project it onto them, and we therefore care for them. That's the way it's to be. If one member suffers, we all suffer. And we are to show empathy to those in need. And then, Lastly, mutual love involves fidelity. Now, he says here, he introduces the the issue of marriage here, and he does so, do you notice, in very interesting terms. He says, let marriage be held in honor. Why does he do that? Well, we know that in the early days of the church, 
marriage was not necessarily top drawer when it came to Christians. Celibacy and singleness were far more important. So the Apostle Paul is arguing for marriage as over against celibacy and singleness, which were held to be up here in, in terms of the kind of lifestyle where you could please God and serve God best. Now, that was okay to have that view. But there were some people who were actually going beyond that and saying, you should not marry. So Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 4, and he warns against those who forbid marriage. And here's what he goes on to do. He argues for marriage because it needed an argument. He goes on to say this, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. He has to make an argument for honoring marriage. In the sub-apostolic, post-apostolic church, rather, there's a group called the Montanists. They promoted celibacy as belonging to the state of Christian perfection. If you were celibate, you were up there in a special state. Now, it's very possible, therefore, that there were in this group to whom the author is writing, people who are promoting celibacy as a superior way of life. And so, the writer says two things. One, marriage should be honored, not idolized, but honored. It's okay to marry. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And it should be safeguarded. You notice he doesn't talk about the legal and emotional aspects of marriage but of the act of physical union itself. Marriage is not honored where we engage in that physical union with people before marriage or inside marriage. Secondly, fidelity in relation to money. Love of money, putting faith in the security of our income is not a 21st century American problem. The writer says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, love of money is a root of every kind of wickedness. What is love? How does love of money show itself? In this text, the author is concerned to show that a preoccupation with money is evidence of unbelief. You see, in life, in a person's life, in a family, there are periods where you have more money and periods where you have less money, for one reason or another. In churches, like our church, there are periods where we've had more money and there are periods where we've had less money. How does God calling us to think about those periods. Well, He calls on us to live within what we have. When we have a load of money, let's think of a church. When we have a load of money, what do we do with it? Do we spend it in entertainment? And kind of glossing up everything, making it far more attractive, spend it on, on things really that we shouldn't be spending it on at all. Did we waste money when we had lots of money? What should we be doing in times when we have little money? We should be living within 
the limits that God has given. This is the lesson. This is true for people. Live within the limits of what God has given. It's in the providence of God. There's nothing worse, is there, than a person who's always rattling on about how little they have. And there's nothing worse than a church that's always rattling on telling you how much they want. God gives the church the tithe that God requires, and God gives you what He has given you in your, in your individual life for you to live on. Now, this is not going into the questions of, do you get a better job, or do you do this, that, or the other thing? You see, what the point of the passage is this. It's put like this by Paul in 1 Timothy 6. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. Here the writer says, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's calling for trust. What are you putting your trust in? Having a good bank balance, a great income, or are you trusting in God? That's the issue. It's a fundamental issue. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the writer goes on, it's on the basis of that promise that we can confidently say, and he quotes from Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's where God wants us. He wants us going to the throne of grace when we need help. And at the throne of grace, finding grace to help us in our time of need. It's trusting in the Lord that helps believers, enable, enables believers to live within their means, to live even in hard circumstances, to be generous and faithful in their difficulties. But the promise of God is fundamental and real. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What happens in those periods of my life when I have less? What happens in those periods of our church's life when our income is less? Listen to this quotation from Calvin that one of our members posted this morning on Twitter. The Lord frequently upsets the purposes of His saints in order to humble them and by such humiliation to teach them to regard His providence that they may rely on it. Thank you, Anzi, for that quotation this morning. What is God doing in our difficult circumstances? Well, He's chastening us. He's teaching us. He's teaching us not to rely on these things that we're missing. He's teaching us to rely and regard His providence, that God is in control of this. This did not surprise God. This is within the orbit of God's dealings with us so that we may rely on God Himself. So I'll quote you what I put on Twitter this morning. You get this free. This is with a nod to John Owen, who inspired it. He who is over all 
the supreme disposer of all things in heaven and earth, in whose hand and power are all the concerns of His people, who can do whatever He pleases, He whose divine nature is the source of all the efficacy, power, and comfort of His promises, He who is truth and who cannot deceive, He has said it, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He whose divine presence and and assistance are inseparable from who He is Himself is Himself the all-sufficient guarantee of grace to match our every need. Now, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Then let's trust Him for it. Let's rest on His promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ loves his brothers, his church of brothers and sisters. He loves his family. He's looking out for his family. We're his family. Let's love one another and let's trust in God. Father, we pray that you would take your word and apply it carefully to our hearts. And as we sit under its teaching, we pray that you would make us more attentive to you and to your voice, and more trusting, we ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.